If you don't have a Bible this evening, we'd sure like you to have a Bible to follow along with us. So just raise your hand and the men that are coming up the aisles will get one into your hands. And let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1 this evening. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. The books of First and Second Samuel are a continuation of the history of the nation of Israel from uh, the book of Judges and the time of the Judges. And at this point in the Old Testament history of Israel, the nation of Israel transitions from a the spiritual and the moral wickedness and the anarchy of the period of Judges toward a period in Israel's history known as the monarchy, when they would be ruled by kings. Saul is ultimately going to become their first king. David will immediately follow him after what is a fair disaster in terms of the first king, become the second and greatest king in the history of the nation of Israel and second really only to, uh, to Jesus. And so the books of First and Second Samuel take their names from uh, a man by the name of Samuel. We're going to only know him as a kiddo this morning in these first three chapters, but a man who uh, ultimately became uh, one of the judges of, of Israel, also a prophet, and even performed some of the functions of a priest in the course of, of his ministry. He's really one of the most remarkable men in the entire Old Testament. I don't know how well known he is anymore because I don't know how many people are conversant with the Old Testament anymore. But this is a tremendous uh, servant of the Lord and so much to learn uh, from him. He's mentioned in the great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 as one of the great men and women of faith all the way through uh, the history of God's people in the Bible. And then uh, very, very impressively, the Lord coupled his name and his righteous life with Moses in speaking through the prophet Jeremiah in uh, Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 1, and kind of a rebuke to the apostasy of God's people. The Lord said to me, Jeremiah said, even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, I'd never expect to say, God say, even if Moses and Kyle, this would be a little too much, but Samuel fits in there. Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people, cast them out of my sight, and let them go forth. And so, in this book, we're not only going to be introduced to Samuel, but like I said, ultimately the first king of Israel, Saul, and then uh, the introduction of to David prior to him becoming the king. And uh, so great, great lessons for a lot of people. Those are just names in their head. And uh, as we study these books of the Old Testament, they become really very, very good friends to us. And God wants them to be good friends to us. So the circumstances uh, surrounding the birth and the childhood uh, of Samuel, chapters 1 through 3, chapter 1, verse 1. And there was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah. He was the son of uh, Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephraimite. And so we have 
kind of the genealogy and the lineage of Samuel's uh, father here. His father's name is Elkanah. It's a, a pretty lengthy lineage that is given to us here and probably indicates that he comes from a very, very prominent family at that time uh, in, in the history of, uh, of Israel. Samuel was raised with his parents in the city of Ramathaim Zophim, which is about five miles or was about five miles to the north of Jerusalem, to give you kind of an idea, down in that uh, uh, south-central part uh, of Israel. And he had two wives, did his father. Uh, the name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was uh, Peniah. And Peniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now that's, uh, two wives is a problem, period. Um, one of them being quite fertile and the other infertile and barren is going to create a lot of problems for that, that household. The fact that Hannah was infertile, as we're going to see, in, or as we're told here in, in the verse, and, and more greatly loved by Elkanah, her husband, as we'll see in verse 5, makes it very, very likely that Hannah was his first wife. And then when she was unable to bear him a son and thus an heir to continue on the name, uh, the family name in the history of Israel, all Jewish people dreamed. They didn't want their name to die. And one of the reasons they didn't want their name to die in the history of Israel was because it might be, uh, some of them felt it might be, who knows uh, at this point in time in Israel's history, uh, what family God might bring the Messiah into the world through. And so there were a lot of reasons, but that was one of the reasons they didn't want, uh, uh, a man never wanted his name to die in the history. And so probably because of her barrenness, uh, he then married a, a second wife to produce an heir for the family name. That was a very, very common practice in the ancient world. And uh, now the fact that God makes mention of this concerning Elkanah in verse 2 doesn't mean that God approved of it. God mentions a lot of things in his word for informational purposes that we understand what in the world's going on here. But it doesn't always mean that he is endorsing uh, the practice. We're going to see uh, soon enough, though, that Elkanah is really, apart from this uh, polygamy that he's involved in, he really is a special guy. He's a very godly man. He's a very kind man uh, to Hannah, and uh, there's a lot to admire in him. He does seem to make a mistake in marrying the second wife in order to produce children to carry on the name because it would appear as we go through the story uh, if we ever get to the story. But I mean, we will get to the story. But it would appear that God was, was intent upon producing a child between Elkanah and Hannah, uh, a special child to be introduced into a very dark period in Israel's history, the period of the Judges, and to kind of take the nation by the hand and bring them into the comparatively uh, lighter and more spiritual period of the kings, at least in the, with the early kings. So if he had just held on, much in the same way Abraham with Hagar and Sarah and all of that, 
If he had just kind of held on with Hannah, ultimately he would have had uh, other children. God was going to open up her womb and produce a child, but he got a little bit anxious and, uh, and, and took this second wife, and everything gets complicated. And uh, ultimately, Hannah is going to bear him six children. And so the fact that he could have two wives it, it also indicates the fact that he was probably uh, fairly well off. It, you, you had to have uh, resources to raise uh, two families or to two, have two wives kind of under the same uh, household. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And so every single year, again it tells us a little bit about the spirituality of Samuel's father. Every year they'd make the annual pilgrimage to Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle was. We remember all of the furnishings of the tabernacle and all of the, uh, uh, for the sacrifices and all those things, the priesthood, all that was located in Shiloh. Ultimately, it's going to be in Jerusalem where the temple is going to be built. But at this point in time in history, that's where the Jews went to meet uh, with, with God. And so every single year he would go there in uh, alignment with the law of Moses, which required that every Jewish man uh, would uh, go to the tabernacle, offer offerings to the Lord uh, three times a year, once during the Feast of Passover, then the Feast of Pentecost, and then finally a third time at the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. And so uh, Elkanah regularly attended uh, the festivals with his wives, Shiloh being about 15 miles away from where they lived. And so this tells us a lot about Elkanah here and that he is doing this during the period of the judges. We just come out not too long ago out of the period of the judges and wow, what a crazy, terrible time in Jewish history. And yet Elkanah was uh, with Boaz and others like them, Hannah and, uh, and Naomi and all. There was a godly remnant in that apostasy that loved God. They stayed obedient to God in that, uh, during that period of, of darkness when everyone else was apostatizing from God and God was going to use it. So it was a, it was a pretty big thing. I mean, you look at the culture that we live in. And uh, you look at how many people are falling away from the Lord tonight, today in Modesto, this time in history, where the evil is so prevalent, the temptation is so great, sin is so accessible, and, and, uh, and, and such a strong influence all around us. And what it does is when I see Christians that are continuing to walk with the Lord, whether they're young or whether they're old or whatever, I have enormous respect for them. We are post-Christian in this country. No two ways about it, apart from a revival, which I'm hopeful for. But it really meant something for that guy to say and say, I don't care, we're going to see some real problems that this guy is willing to work through to stay faithful in his relationship with God and to raise his family such as it was in the things of the Lord. It's the same things you face. It's the same things that I face to do it. It's a remarkable thing that he's doing. He's a tremendous uh, brother in the Lord, a good, God-fearing man. It used to be when somebody was called God-fearing, it was a compliment. Now it's no compliment. It's a compliment in heaven to be God-fearing, and that fear of God to be represented in obedience uh, to the Lord. Also, we're told the two sons of Eli were introduced to the high priest at the time, Eli. Um, 
And his two sons were named Hophni and Phinehas. The priests of the Lord were there when he would go there for this annual pilgrimage. And, and whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to uh, Peninnah and his wife and to all of her sons and, and daughters. So she's just like Ma Kettle here. I mean, she's, they've got kids... She's, she's as fertile as, as Hannah is not fertile. So kids all over the place. And, but to Hannah, uh, Elkanah would give a double portion of the sacrifice for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her uh, womb. And so at, at these feasts you could offer to the Lord what was called a peace offering, a fellowship offering. And one of the things that was interesting about this offering, as we saw in the law, is that you would give the offering to God, the animal sacrifice, and then a portion of that sacrifice would be returned to you, the meat. And then you would take that meat and you would take your family aside and you'd kind of have a, a great feast. And the idea was God is in His holy place. He is enjoying that from that same animal, uh, what's been offered, you're now enjoying a portion of that same animal. And so there's this fellowship that's happening as you're enjoying, enjoying a meal together. And what it represented was a person's, that, that, I'm having, that I have fellowship with God, that a relationship with God is important to me. So here is Elkanah, a portion of the meat is given back to him. He goes back to his wives and uh, then sits down and he heaps a double portion of the meat on Hannah's plate. You know that's trouble. <laughs> and, he, and he heaps that double portion up on her plate because, as an expression of, of, of the fact that he loved her twice as much. It was an expression of his, his love uh, for, for her. And... Uh, and wanting to cheer her up and all, and bless her despite her lack of children. Well, you don't have to imagine very much. This probably didn't go over well, very well with uh, Penina, and it, and it didn't. It produced tremendous uh, rivalry between the two wives for the affection of the one husband, and, and uh, which is doubtless one of the many complications of. Of polygamy. Uh, if you're a polygamist, you can tell me what the other complications are. Uh, this is enough to scare any sane person away uh, from it. Now, her rival, Penina, also provoked uh, Hannah severely. I've got children, you don't. I've got, you know, I mean, it's just this kind of a deal to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. Now one of the things in terms of the ancient world and the Jews in those days is they, they held the position that when a woman was barren that it was a sign of, that God had cursed her. That there was sin in her life and that God was somehow judging her for some kind of secret sin in her life. So it made it very easy for Penina to gain a considerable audience or people on her side in terms of saying there's got to be something wrong with her between her and God for her not to have children. Obviously there's nothing wrong with uh, Elkanah. There's nothing wrong with me. Boy, I wonder what's going on inside of her and what makes God so displeased and so with her. And so she would put this thing in front of Hannah 
all of the time. The problem is, is that Hannah is a very, very godly woman. And uh, so, but this is the kind of thing that was going on. And, and it was a terrible stigma. It wasn't true. God is very much for Hannah. He's going to do a great thing here. But it's what people fought in those days. And so it was, this didn't just happen one year and, and you know, it was kind of a, a bugged Hannah a little bit. It, so it was year by year. Every year when they went up, Peninnah's got another baby she's holding, and uh, she went up to the ha- when she went up to the house of the Lord, that she provoked Hannah, and therefore Hannah wept and did not eat. Elkanah could put two portions of meat in front of her, and by the way, meat was a was a, a great rarity in those days. So if you were served meat, that was a pretty special opportunity. You might not have that kind of a portion for the rest of the year, at least until the next feast. And yet all of this that was going on, it just affected her so much that she wept and she didn't eat. So it it reveals to us here how it affected her emotionally. She just couldn't stop crying. I mean, this is the treatment that she's getting, and then she, you know, begins to perhaps believe that God is against her. And, and And the physical... Uh, effect that it had upon her is, is a loss of appetite. She couldn't even eat or enjoy, you know, what was put in front of her to eat. And then Elkanah, her husband, and he loves her. He really does. He said, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Women, do you recognize this? This guy is like me. <laughs> he is so thick. Honey. Why are you crying? Why aren't you eating? Where have you been the last ten years where Peninnah's just railing on me every single day about being barren? Do you live in this household? Anyway, enough about... <laughs> but he loves her and he's trying. God bless men that try. <laughs> the Bible says concerning men with women, Peter writes and he says that as husbands we are to dwell with our wives according to knowledge. New King James came out and they retranslated knowledge into understanding. Completely marred the passage. No man will ever understand a woman. But here's what he can do. And, and, And it shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't be and vice versa. So don't leave and be all upset and say I'm a chauvinist. But but it, it, the, no man is ever going to understand a woman, and a woman has to understand that about a man. But he can dwell with her according to knowledge. He can know her. He can study her life out of love and know this is important to her, this isn't important to her, this is a struggle for her, this is easy for her. We can dwell with our wives according to, to knowledge. And so he doesn't get it. So, Hannah, why do you weep? Why don't you eat? Why is your heart grieved? And then he should have stopped. And he says, Am I not better to you than ten sons? This is a woman that just wants one child. And he says, Am I not better to you than ten sons? Now the fact of the matter is, in terms of love and in terms of physical support of her, He was better than ten sons. But she wants a child. And in this case, as is often the case, 
Not always the case, but often the case. The husband does not understand how important a child is to the wife and having a child. And so he is, he is kind of uh, thick here a little bit and uh, doesn't seem to be uh, uh, getting it. Now, this is, ladies, this is a very, very important uh, point uh, concerning Elkanah and Hannah here. We're going to see how Hannah handles all of this, by the way. Um, you cannot expect a man, even the most loving, caring man, to understand you or to provide ultimate comfort for you. Only God can do that. Now, Hannah gets it. She doesn't come back to, to Elkanah and say, if you, have, if you were more sensitive than I can, I can't believe in the whole... She heads straight to the tabernacle and she says, I'm going to meet with God. I'm going to go talk to the one who understands everything that's going on inside of me and I don't have to debrief him and tell him everything. I can pray to him. I can begin a sentence in the middle of the sentence and he's tracking with me. And he's the one that can comfort me. And he's the only one, and Hannah recognized it, he is the only one that can meet this need in my life. We have to be very careful not just as wives towards husbands, but husbands toward wives. Some of the greatest damage that I see in, in strain that is put upon Christian marriage is when we put expectations on a spouse that only God can meet. It is doomed to fail. If I expect of my husband or I expect of my wife what only God can provide for me and what can only happen in my life out of my own personal relationship with the Lord. And, and to Hannah's credit, she does not put that expectation upon Elkanah. But many, many wives and many, many husbands uh, do it toward their spouses. When you look at this whole picture of the relationship between Elkanah and Hannah. Number one, we see Elkanah loved Hannah. This is, a, this is a good husband. Elkanah loved Hannah, and she knew it. He tries to be understanding to her. He tries to encourage her. He tries to comfort her. He nurtured her spiritually. He brings her to the tabernacle on an annual basis. In, in, in a time in Jewish history when only the men needed to come. It was only required that the men came. The men did not need to bring their wives. He brings his wives, including Hannah, to be impacted by the Lord at the tabernacle. He is concerned about her spiritual growth in, in her life. And... And, but he could not provide her with a baby. Only God could do that. And so Hannah's going to do what all of us have to do concerning our tears and concerning our heartache in life, and that is to take it to the Lord, which is exactly what she does in verse 9. And so she arose after they had finished eating. She couldn't eat and drinking in Shiloh. 
So she goes to the tabernacle, and Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And so he sat, was sitting nearby, and she was in bitterness of soul. And she prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. I mean, most of us sooner or later in life are going to be, uh, be there. But I mean, she's just, you know, tears, tears are a language. And, and I mean, she's just, she's got all this stuff going on inside of her and, and all of this kind of thing that is, is happening to her. And then she made a vow and she said, as she prays to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, tremendous humility, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. Now usually, you, what you see in that, uh, that a vow that she makes to the Lord there in verse 11. You see a, an early part of it to God, if you, then I. Now, usually in that kind of a prayer, when someone says to God, if you, then I, you've got a manipulation going on. And I know that sometimes people look at what Hannah is doing here and they think that she's attempting to manipulate God. I don't believe it at all. She is not requesting a child from God in order to fulfill some kind of a carnal desire in, inside of her. Her vow reveals that she wants more than a son from God. It reveals the reason she wants a son. And the reason that she wants a son is to have a son from God so that she can know what it feels like to then give that son back to God to use however he sees fit. That's what she wants to feel. That's what she wants to know as a mother. I want to know just one time what that feels like to have a child to give back to you. There's tremendous spirituality behind her request. That's all that she wanted out of it in the degree to which she was willing to commit this son that would be given to her is, is that she's willing to make him a Nazarite from his birth as it, no razor shall come to his head all the days of his life. I will give, God, I will give this child to you uh, once and for all, not for a month, not for two months, not for three years, but his whole life. And that's a tremendous sacrifice. Now it happened. Here's a... It happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli looks over at her. And I mean, she's weeping and, and, and she's just a mess here emotionally and all. And he watched her mouth. And Hannah spoke, with, uh, spoke in her heart. She's praying to the Lord, but she's not saying anything audible. She's just speaking, she's just saying the words on, on her lips. The, her lips are moving, but her voice was not heard. So he looks over at her, and Eli thought that she was drunk. And you can imagine, I mean, she's just like, you know, like this, the whole thing, and only there's no sound coming out of the whole thing. And, and, and Eli looks over and says, um, you know, that she must be drinking. And so Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk 
Put your wine away from you. Now, um, this reflects rather poorly upon Eli. Here you've got this broken-hearted woman that's wandered into church, and she's pouring out her heart to God. And the first and only thing that Eli can think about is that another drunk has wandered into church. So he's not in a great place. Now, it doesn't reflect, to his credit, it doesn't reflect uh, very well upon the culture. Because it indicates that this was probably a fairly common occurrence. So... Uh, that people would come into the tabernacle drunk and doing this, this kind of thing. And, and so this was the conclusion that he came to, and Hannah answered, and she's going to correct him. You know, I've heard in my Christian life where, you know, if someone said something bad about you or against you or something like that, never defend yourself. I don't know about that. I pull a lot of verses out that would, uh, you know, rebut that. But notice what Hannah does. She corrects him and, and uh, clarifies what's going on. No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. That's what's going on. I've drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. That's what you're seeing. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Now, evidently, uh, you know, nonverbal prayer was kind of rare for Eli to see in those days. And uh, so he, he misunderstood it, and she clarified it. And Eli, to his credit, he recognized that he was wrong, and he said, go in peace. He accepts her explanation, and then he pronounces a blessing upon her and says, and the God of Israel, grant your petition which you have asked of him. So he basically says, I endorse whatever it is that you're asking of God, I add my priestly authority uh, to that prayer. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. And so the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Something happens to her at that tabernacle between her and her conversation with the Lord and then with Eli, and what Eli says to her, that something happens by the Holy Spirit in her heart that she recognizes she has a promise from God that she's going to have a child. So she, she holds on to that promise. I don't know how the revelation is given. God's pretty personal on those things. And, but she walks away, and she's convinced now that she's going to have a child. And uh, so they go back, uh, ultimately, uh, to their house in Rama, and uh, her face is no longer sad. She's not grieving, and she is, uh, begins to live like a person that is going to receive the thing that they want most in life. And so they rose up early in the morning, worshiped before the Lord one final time before leaving Shiloh, and they returned and came to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah knew or had marital relationships with Hannah, his uh, wife, and the Lord remembered her. So a miracle. And it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived, bore a son, and, named his na- and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. And the name Samuel means asked of God. And so she um, names him that. One of the great things about prayer, and there are a lot of great things about prayer, is that you recognize God's hand all over something when that 
prayer gets answered. So every time she would call out and say, Samuel, 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 it was a reminder to her that God hears her prayers and that her son was, was a miracle. Her son was a gift from God. And of course the Bible teaches that's how we're to view all of our children. Psalm 127 verse 3, Behold, God's word says, Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward. Every child is a miracle really is a miracle of God. They should be raised with the consciousness that they are a gift from God into a family and into this world. Now, I want us, before we leave Hannah in this particular place in her life, I would like uh, to, uh, to make note of four characteristics of her life, four characteristics of a godly mother, but they're equally true of a godly father, Elkanah. Elkanah is is we're going to see in just a few verses. He is completely supportive of Hannah and all of this. Four characteristics of Hannah as a mother. Number one, she viewed children as a gift from the Lord. She saw uh, Samuel as uh, a blessing. And you, you think about practically when you have a parent that is raising a child who views that child as being a blessing from God, versus a tax deduction or something that happened or this or that. I mean, you're going to... The Bible says that whatever is in our heart is going to be on, in our mouth. It's going to come out of our mouth. And so it's important for us as parents, Christian parents, to recognize that our children are a gift from the Lord. They're no accident or anything else. And then to raise them with that kind of understanding and, and it does something wonderful in their heart. Number two, Hannah dedicated Samuel to the Lord. And in doing so, she was acknowledging that Samuel belonged to God uh, first and foremost, primarily, and that Samuel belonged to her uh, in a secondary way, that she was a steward of Samuel. This child belongs to God, number one, belongs to me, number two. I've been given a child as a stewardship to raise in the things of the Lord in order to give this child back to the Lord. And it's so important for us to acknowledge as parents, God has given me this child, he, this, this boy or this girl belongs to God first, been given to me to raise in the things of the Lord. Number three, she was a woman of God. She really reverenced God and uh, she feared the Lord, and I think that a fear of the Lord is one of the most important things that a parent can possess. Because Hannah is, uh, has uh, Samuel born to her, and she's going to raise him for the first three years of his life or so in a very dark spiritual and moral environment of the time of the judges. In, in the nation of, of Israel. We're raising children today as Christians in a very, very dark environment. And so it was her deep, deep respect for the Lord and her reverence for the Lord uh, that she needed in order to raise him up in, the, in, in, in God's way rather than just to release him into the flow of the culture. And we need a fear of the Lord uh, in order to do the same thing, to raise the children God's way and then rather than releasing them into the culture. I, I think that every one of us as parents needs to know that one day we're going to give an account for how we have 
raised our children in the Lord. And those of you who became Christians later in life where your children were grown and all, this is a whole, that's a different issue for you. But those of us who know the Lord and, and God blesses us with children, one of the things that really helps us maintain a backbone in, in, in these issues of raising a child, and I don't think there's anything more demanding in life when it's done right than the raising of another human being into adult life, and uh, is that recognition that one day I'm, that is a ministry that God has given to me, and one day I'm going to give an account for that. And that will get you up out, out of the couch to discipline when nothing else would get you up out of the couch to discipline or to do whatever else it might be. I've been, I, I, I have a respect for God and a reverence for God and, uh, that makes me faithful in, in that area. And, it, and the fear of the Lord is a very, a very healthy thing in our lives. It's the beginning of wisdom, the Bible says, and uh, it certainly is the beginning of raising a wise child. I think that um, when we look at Hannah's life and this whole relationship that she had with God, a reverence for God and all, it tells us that one of the greatest things that we can offer to our children is to have our own deep, living, current, personal relationship with God. And that's what Hannah had. That's what she had. I don't, nobody, nobody is going to raise a child in the way that God wants a child raised. No parent is going to do that if they do not have a current, personal, healthy, growing relationship with God. And she had one of those. And a child needs a parent and needs parents that have those. Now, if you're a, um, in a marriage where one person is a Christian, the other person is not a Christian and all, God's got grace for how to pick things up like that. But as much as we can be in, in terms of being a Christian, this is what we need to bring uh, to our, uh, our, our children. Children need parents that have a relationship with the Lord. And number four concerning uh, Hannah, she raised Samuel to serve the Lord. She didn't just raise him uh, to survive 18 years for the day that she could give him luggage and shoo him out the door. She, she looked and said, I want to raise this child in a way that by the time he moves out from under my influence, he has been raised not merely to be a Christian or to give a profession of faith, but that he has been equipped to leave this place and move straight into whatever God's call is upon his life and to be successful in, in that calling. Those are two entirely different uh, uh, you know, uh, things that a parent brings in terms of, of, of raising a child, where somebody says, well, I'm just going to raise them, get by, and if they don't get pregnant before they get out of our house, that I'll be happy with that. That's how low some of the standard is today, versus saying, I'm going to raise this child to follow God and make a difference in the world uh, in, in, in line with God's call upon their life. Verse 21. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer uh, to the Lord his, the yearly sacrifice and his vow. So he stays faithful in this, uh, this cycle of going to meet with the Lord. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, 
Then I will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Hannah doesn't want to bring him and leave him with Eli the priest until he's weaned. Now in those days, uh, we know from uh, some Jewish documents and all that typically a child wasn't weaned until they were three years old. That could be horrifying to some of you today, but that's the way that it was in those days. And so you didn't want to deliver... um, you know, Samuel to Eli and he's and you're having to bring pampers every month or something like that. So he's got to be situated in terms of diet and, and, and some of these other kind of things. So he says, well, wait until he's weaned. Then we can deliver him to the Lord there and he can remain there forever. And so it's self-sustaining, so to speak. And so Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Now, one of the reasons that this reflects very, very favorably on Elkanah. We look at Hannah and say, wow, look at Hannah. And we, and we should do that. She's tremendous spiritually. But Elkanah is too. According to the law of Moses, if a wife made a vow to the Lord that the husband did not agree with, he could overrule that vow and it would go by the wayside. The fact that he upholds Hannah's vow is an indication that he is fully on board with this. This is a real uh, special guy. These are, these are very, very special uh, parents. Only in, then the woman, uh, end of verse 23, then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bulls, one ephah of flour, skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, and the child was uh, young. And so here's this exciting day now to offer uh, him to the Lord there and leave him there. They slaughtered a bull, so the first thing they did was to offer their sacrifice. Then they brought the child to Eli. And she said to Eli, O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I'm the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. Remember three years ago you thought I was the drunk? I was hoping you wouldn't remind me of that. She she didn't say that here. She's very gracious in what she says. You remember, I'm the one that was praying to the Lord here for this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. He did it. I've had a child. I've had a son. And therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. And so they worship the Lord there. And so she dedicates uh, Samuel Uh, to the things of the Lord there in Shiloh. No one knows what God is going to do at this moment in time through Samuel. Nobody knows the rest of the story. He's going to take this three-year-old kid that's going to play for a number of years, and I don't make light of it, but he's going to play priest, dress up, for a number of years before God meets with him and God's really going to train him in that, in that place. But you look at him and it says, look at the cute little kid that's hanging around the tabernacle. And nobody knows that this kid is going to be used by God to take the entire nation of Israel again by the hand out of one of the darkest periods in their history into one of the greatest periods in their history. You never know what's bound up in a child's life. Those whippersnappers whipping and snapping out in the courtyard after the service. 
And in those classrooms, you just look at them and you say, who knows what in the world God is going to do with you by the time He gets done with you. It's very, very exciting. Only God knew what He was going to do here. And then Hannah chapter 2, she took the opportunity to then pray a prayer of praise to the Lord for this wonderful chapter in her life. It's interesting that she prays this prayer, and again, it reflects her heart. She was not trying to manipulate God to get a child. She prays this prayer of, uh, of praise and all to the Lord, not at the birth of Samuel, but three years later after his birth, when she gets to feel the feeling of giving a child to the things of God. That's what filled her heart and produced this song. And you read this, this uh, psalm that she cries out, and you see this is a deeply spiritual woman. She said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn, talking about power, is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. She rejoiced in God's power to overwhelm even her barrenness and to give her the miracle of a child. No one is holy, she rejoices in God's holiness, like the Lord. For there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our rock. Our God is stable. There's no rock, no God in the world like our God. And then she said further, Talk no more very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. Now we don't know if Penina is on her mind at this uh, point in time. And, uh, but basically, we, it may or may not be so, but she is speaking against all people who speak proudly uh, against the Lord and all. So she says, let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge. By Him all actions are ways. In other words, God knows what's going to be the end of the story in a person's life. She celebrates that. She's barren, has no child. She's being the boasting and all of this pain being heaped upon her. And she rises up and she praises the Lord for how He's able to shut the mouth of the proud and He's able to, because He can look at a situation and knows where it's going to end up. And He knew that her situation was going to end up with a child. And so he, she celebrates that. And, and, and kind of what she's declaring here is that we should never ever let... Uh, someone who is proud or someone who, who views themselves as our adversary, the things, the hurtful things that they would say against us, the limitations that are on our life because God is against us. You know, the, the, the old saying, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. No greater lie put to rhyme. Words are very, very powerful things. And sometimes we can believe what our enemies say about us. We can believe what people say about us. And Hannah comes in and says, forget about what your adversaries are saying about you. God knows what He's going to do in your life and through your life. And that's all that matters. The, bow, the bows of the mighty men are broken. And those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who 
were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. And so he's, he, she's uh, observing how quickly God can change circumstances in people's lives, how he can take the proud and humble them, how he can take the low and exalt them. In other words, she's just praising the Lord for how everything in life can change on a dime. Do you believe that about your life? Everything can change in our lives in a moment in time and uh, with, with the God that we serve. And so even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children shall become feeble. The Lord kills and He makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and He makes rich. He brings low and He lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them around, among princes and to make them inherit the throne of God. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. God's, uh, she rejoices in this, the almightiness of God, the strength of God. He is able to uh, establish the uh, orbit of, of the earth. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. People say, well, the pillars of the earth, I mean, here they are in this ancient time and they're believing that the earth is sitting on pillars. Nonsense. What holds the earth? What pillars? It's poetic speech. You, I mean, you, you have the, how, what is the makeup of the atmosphere and all of the things of the atmosphere that keeps the earth in exactly its place in terms of orbit and in terms of the whole universe and all. God has set all of that up. It's a pillar. It's an air pillar that He's established. So it keeps it in orbit. He has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of His saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. God can not only keep the earth in its orbit, but he is able, you say, well, God is so busy keeping track of the universe, how can he know anything about me? He can keep track of the whole universe, and he can keep an individual saint from slipping or falling. He's got a macro and a micro picture. We're never out of his sight. We're never beyond his concern. For by strength no man shall prevail the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them, and the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. So she rejoices over the fact that God will one day prevail fully over his enemies. And he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, speaking of the Messiah. Hannah saw the work of God in uh, granting her a child as another step in kind of the fulfillment of, of God's promise to the mothers of Israel that one day He would provide a Messiah through them. And so she rejoiced that Samuel was a part of that plan. This is a child, one more child, one more generation that is taking us closer to the birth of the Messiah. And then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered uh, to the Lord before Eli the priest, so he is left behind. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. So here they are, they've been raised around godly things all of their life, but they knew of the Lord, but they didn't have a personal relationship with the Lord. And that's going to create problems in any church leadership. 
And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. And then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. And so they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. God is going to... There were three things that these sons of Eli were doing that were really um, um, messing with the minds and the spirits of, of God's people. They were absolutely wrong, and God confronts them here on it. When people brought a peace offering to the Lord, a section of that peace offering was to be given to the priests. I think it was the, the breast and one of the shoulders was to be given to the priests because they needed food to eat too. So here are the priests now, Eli's sons. These offerings are being made. They take the breast, they take the shoulder, and then while the food that is to be given to the worshiper to go and have their feast with their family is boiling in the pot, they would take a hook, go into it, and dig a a three-pronged hook into the meat and then pull another portion of that meat out to themselves. They were just ripping people off in that way. They're taking what was was not intended for them, but was intended for the people. And also, the second thing they did, before they burned the fat, the priest servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, give meat for roasting to the priest, for we will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. The, the, uh, these uh, sacrifices... Were, that were going to go to the priest. It was to be boiled meat, but they would come right after the sacrifice had been made and all, and the, and the meat is fresh and everything, and they would come and they would say, even before this guy would offer it to the Lord, they would come in and demand their cut from it. They didn't want boiled meat. They wanted barbecued meat. And this was contrary to the law of Moses. And if a man said, third, uh, to them, confronted them and said, hey, they, they really should burn the fat first. I mean, offer that to the Lord. Then you can take as much as your heart desires. They would answer him and they would say, no, but you must give it now. And if not, we'll take it by force. That'd be like uh, on Sunday morning when we take the offering if all the people were armed with a gun. Just forcing people and strong-arming people and, 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 and just abusing people. And therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. God watched this. It displeased Him, for men abhorred the offerings of the Lord. So they would, they would go, oh no, we want to go to Shiloh, we want to make an offering to the Lord, but they're going to do that to me again. I hate that what they do to me when I go down there and they just rip me off in the name of the Lord that way and they call themselves priests and I mean it's just terrible and they're just ruining a trip to the tabernacle to worship the Lord for God's people and you know what's remarkable is Elkanah kept going he kept taking his family didn't that God would take care of the priests, and God will take care of, of these sons. He's going to really take care of them. He's going to wipe them out. So that was God's problem, how he dealt with that. All Elkanah knew is that God has told me in his word that I am to appear to, before him at the tabernacle three times a year, and he obeyed it. No matter how badly 
um, the priests were misrepresenting the Lord. Sometimes you get people and they say, I'm not going to go to church. You know, there's just too many hypocrites down there and everything. Well, you know, we need some place to hang out. I, I don't know what, I don't know anybody that isn't a hypocrite a little bit on, on things. So, well, you know, they're trying to rob me of my money and the whole deal. And so, and, so, and, and you, don't, you don't have to even have to give people that large of an excuse not to. I'm just going to stay home and watch Charles Stanley. That's, you know, the church is, I just, oh, my God. And God bless Charles Stanley, by the way. And God bless you if you watch him and then come to church. <laughs> but Elkanah kept taking his family down there because if everybody stopped going to the tabernacle as God had commanded them to, then who was going to be an influence for God in the situation? So, I mean, it's, again, everywhere you look, this is, is pretty remarkable, this guy. And Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child and he wore a little linen ephah. That was a garment that the priests wore. So they got him a little one. And moreover, his mother used, used to make him a little robe and brought it to him each year when she came with her husband. And so, you know, got to get a little bit bigger. Boy, that kid's growing. Man, I tell you, between seven and eight. Phew, man. Oh, boy. And nothing about tennis shoes here. And so... She'd bring it year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan which was given to the Lord. He was thankful for uh, Samuel. And then they would go to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah. You can't outgive God, I'm telling you. So that she conceived, bore three sons and two daughters, had five more children after that with with uh, with Elkanah, and meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Now you look at this whole, how messy things are at the tabernacle. You say, boy, I don't know, is that, is it that wise to have a kid grow up around that kind of religious hypocrisy and see all that kind of stuff? Aren't you going to mess him up for life? Not if God calls him to be there. God gives us whatever we need to be able to navigate any circumstance we're in the middle of. When we're in the middle of His, His calling, He's faithful to do that. Do you know, I don't know how it works for you, I wish every lesson that I learned in life I was able to learn by watching someone do it right. But some of the lessons that have been driven the deepest into my life, given a real working place in my life, is when in God's will, He has put me in the middle of a situation that horrifies me, but it so horrifies me, I look at it and I say, I never want to be that kind of person. I never want to do that to people or to God's people. And so there's a lot of ways that God works to teach us. And so He puts Samuel in the middle of this kind of a situation because it's a lesson on how not to do things. And how not to do things is almost as valuable as how 
to do things. And I don't think any of us goes through our Christian life that we don't learn it from both sides of things. So it was a part of his training. He's going to get through it all unscarred and all those things because he was in the middle of God's will in, in all of that. And so he continued despite all the hypocrisy around him. And worse, as we're going to see next week, we still, we'll stop there. Verse 21 tonight, to the relief of many of you who are wondering how long is it going to take him to get through verse 36. So, but in the middle of all of this, beautifully, the child Samuel continued to grow before the Lord. Let's